Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program... Jonathan Belcom. ...will join us to discuss... What if this knows? So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week... Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's... Science Show. Jonathan Balcombe, author of What a Fish Knows. Jonathan, why don't you say hello to our listeners? Hello, listeners. Nice to be here. What a Fish Knows was released in 2016 and has since been translated into 12 languages. Jonathan is hoping to release a book in 2020 about flies. If you have any information or anecdotes you'd like to share with Jonathan, please see the link below to his website, and he would be happy to correspond and discuss with you. Jonathan, in your introduction to the book, What a Fish Knows, you hope the book has been written on behalf of fish. I was wondering if you could talk to our listeners a bit about what that means and what it doesn't mean. Sure. Well, all of my books are really works of advocacy. I'm endlessly curious and fascinated by what science shows about animals and how they they tick, and, and I think that's great in and of itself. Uh, that I have a deeper mission in my work, both my, my speaking and my writing about animals, and that is to um, hopefully improve the troubled relationship that we have with other species. I say troubled because we, we kill animals in huge numbers, uh, mostly to eat them, and fishes are no exception, huge numbers, maybe over a trillion a year. A lot of that comes from a, a sort of a level of alienation where we kind of think ourselves superior and separate from them. And, and that gives us license to do with them as we please. That's a very old-school, archaic way of looking at our relationship with another sentient being, another creature that can feel. And so that's what I kind of am getting at when I say on behalf of fishes. I dedicated that book to the billions or trillions that we um, that we dispatch and without ever knowing anything about them as individuals. And my book clearly shows, and what we know about fishes clearly shows, they are individuals who have feelings. And so that's the foundation for that statement. It's the advocacy side of my message. I think that is a powerful message. And as you said, the book hopes to show people the ways that fish do experience feeling. One example of this, you focus a bit on how the feelings of fish are hormonally driven, much like humans and other mammals. For example, you point out that fish display expected behavioral changes when their level of oxytocin are increased, and also that when they're in stressed environments, they experience an increased level of cortisol, and they actively look to soothe themselves. So based on the way that you focus on hormones, my question is whether or not fish and mammals have a high threshold for experiencing emotions or one that's lower than humans, because we all can understand that the human threshold for emotion is very low. You know, it doesn't take much for our blood chemistry to um, be altered in a way that into the motion. Is it the same for fish? 
we can never know exactly how another being feels. We can't even know for sure how another human feels. But we can look at the biochemistry of other species, such as fishes, and and how their uh, their hormones change and what sort of hormones there are, and we can link that to their behavior. How do they respond in different situations? And the emotions are really old. They've been around for a long time. They're very useful. They're very adaptive. It's just as useful to to know fear and to flee when one's afraid, say, or to behave in some other way that's an that adaptive way of avoiding the fearful stimulus. It's just as, that's just as adaptive as, as it is to say smell the presence of something dangerous like a predator. And uh, so emotions are really useful. They, they go hand in hand with consciousness and awareness, which fishes clearly have. So they've been around for a long time. And that's the, that's the threshold. I think the, the threshold of other creatures are very comparable to our own. You might even argue that animals are more emotional than humans are often. We, we can convey a lot of information with language, with spoken words, and we can say how we're feeling with language, and um, animals maybe don't have quite as strong an ability to do that, uh, but they can show their emotions through changes in body color and how they their, their postures and how they behave. Uh, whether that speaks to thresholds or not, I don't know, but I would I would vouch that I would I would hazard to say that um, it takes no no less amounts of a certain hormone to elicit a or to accompany a change in emotional change in behavior in a fish than it does in a human. Sure, yeah, I can understand that, especially when you consider um, the longevity of emotional applications to survival in all species. Mm-hmm, yeah. Do you think that you could relate the very specific sensation of pleasure to this explanation of feeling that you bring to fish? Well, let me, let me give you an example. Um, I've written quite a bit about animal pleasure, as you know. I've written two books about that pleasurable kingdom and a, and a pictorial book called The Exalt and Dark. And uh, I think it's really important to consider the positive side of life. So often we discuss animals in terms of their capacity for pain and suffering, which is very important. But uh, there's a whole other spectrum to the experience of life, and that is uh, pleasures. And I, and I think one one element of pleasure, one source of pleasure that's, that's very widespread in, in the animal kingdom or kingdom, if you prefer, is the pleasure of touch. Is the physical contact that can happen. I mean, look at how animals behave. How important grooming is for monkeys and apes, for instance. You know, combing through each other's fur and removing parasites, but also just that nice feeling of having uh, a trusted other touch you in, in that kind of a way. Uh, the importance of touching in sex and uh, in intimacy. Uh, we know that in our species, and, and we can observe that in other species. The courtship of birds and, and fishes, frankly, involves a lot of touching, a lot of physical contact. And one of the most interesting ways it's manifested in fishes is, is, is um, there are studies that show that fishes can will seek uh, stress relief by getting stroked by another fish. And this actually happens on reefs where you have cleaner fish who who tend to so-called client fishes, they remove parasites, but they'll also take breaks from doing that and they will just um, flutter their pectoral fins against the skin, against the sides of these client fish, presumably to make them happier and to make them better customers so that they'll come back for more services from them. It's kind of like uh, reinforcing a business relationship by getting a, a gift at the end of the year, say. And so... Um, and, and so we see other manifestations of that. In, in, oh, well, there are studies that show that stress is relieved by that and that fishes will actually actively seek uh, caresses from another fish to relieve stress. Uh, that's a paper that I described in the book and that was published a few years ago. And also we see fishes in particular groupers. These are large bone fishes that often hang around on reefs. They're predators. They will come up to trusted divers to receive strokes 
so they can get caressed. There's no parasite removal service going on there. And even in the absence of food, um, they'll still come and get stroke. So they they know it feels nice, and they, they know that some people will give them that, and they enjoy it. They, they approach, which is the classic behavior you expect for something that's pleasurable. So it's Pavlovian in, in that sense, would you call it? <laughs> I don't know if there's any salivation going on, <laughs> but uh, which is, of course, not known to the dogs in the Pavlov study. But, right. Um, I, I'm glad you say that. I'm glad you asked that, Christine, because I would say yes and no. I mean, it's Pavlovian in the sense of stimulus response, so we, we can say that about so much of what we are on behavior. But I think it goes far beyond that. There's a there's a conscious aware element. There's an emotional element that rises above merely a stimulus response, which we tend to associate with a lack of thought or a lack of feeling. But right. here we're, we're talking about long, long-lived long individuals, fish uh, within the decades, uh, they are clearly cognitive. They have thoughts, uh, or they can think. They can solve problems. They can they can uh, use tools and some of the other things that they do. Uh, and they also have emotions. And so with, I think we can go beyond saying it's Pavlovian and we can say that it's it's conscious behavior. That's an important distinction, I think, as well, because you can conceive that about mammals. It's hard to convince yourself without actually getting into the research side of it, right? Like the studies you bring up, I think, are really valuable in showing that it is a response driven by much more than just gratification or drive to exist. Mm-hmm. I really had to do the research before I understood exactly how how true it is. And with that, the internet has told me that humans and dolphins are the only species of mammals that seek out coitus for pleasure. Is this true? <laughs> well, I, I would glibly say be very careful of what the Internet tells you. Uh, mm-hmm. and I think Fair enough. I'm aware that as well as the, the Internet is there's a fantastic information superhighway. Of course, there's a lot of misinformation. Mm-hmm. I would strongly, strongly contest that that idea. Um, in my in my books on animal pleasure, I have chapters on sex. Of course, it's important to write chapters on sex because it's an important subject, but it's also an interesting, engaging topic that interests pretty much everybody. And uh, there are just countless examples of uh, sexual interactions that animals engage in that are clearly uh, in, in not not going to... I mean, the most illustrative in terms of the pleasure aspect is, is when the, be- the sexual behavior manifests is not going to result in procreation. It's not going to result in passing genes into the next generation. Um, so you have many examples of same-sex coupling. You have examples of stimulation of, of genitals that, that is not in, in, in a directly sexual coitus type of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you have oral, oral contact, you have manual contact, you have, um, you know, kind of arresting behaviors like manatees, you know, two male manatees who will engage in a 69 position where the penis of each male manatee is in the mouth of the other. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty hard to look at a behavior like that and say, uh, let's see. I don't think there's any pleasure involved here. I don't think right, there's any right. pleasure, pleasure, motivation. It's maybe maybe they're just confused. And indeed, maybe there's some confusion there. Maybe they're young and they're just horny. Who knows? There's a lot of ways of interpreting it. But I think it's really hard to uh, interpret behavior like that without invoking pleasure as being part right. of it. Yeah. I'm glad that that myth could be nearly debunked for me from an expert. Another thing that you brought up in the book that I found very interesting you kind of lead with the idea that there are a lot of misconceptions about fish, and one of them is that fish are primitive. You state that fish are not primitive, that most of the species of fish on Earth were engaging peak evolution about 
15 million years ago, around the same time as humans. I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that. Sure. I'm glad you brought that up. I think it is important. We do have this kind of deep-seated impression that fishes are primitive. I think where that comes from is just the fact that they've been around for a long time, over 400 mm-hmm. million years. And so if you if you compress all the time that humans have been on Earth into one second, uh, fishes have been around on this planet for about four and a half minutes. So in that regard, they're very old. But, um, you know, evolution is a dynamic, ongoing process. It never ends. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may be it may be blind as to purpose or direction, uh, but uh, in hindsight, you can see that animals over time tend to become more adapted to their environments until there's big changes in the environment and they have to kind of, uh, you know, adjust. Um, it's a very kind of reactive process in a way. Anyway, without getting any further into that, um, on, on two levels, fishes are not primitive. One is the fact that they're very old means that they've been evolving for a long time. They've had a lot of time to become pretty souped-up machines, even though they're much more than machines, become pretty complex uh, and impressive and very, very good at, ad- at dividing in their environment. Um, the, other, the other thing is, as you said in, in the question, in the 15 million years or so, um, most of the bony fish, which are the most of the species of fishes that we have today on Earth, um, that exist today are relatively new. They evolved relatively recently, so they are um, pretty modern. And uh, we are we are actually living in the age of in an age of fishes. Uh, the age of mammals is actually long past. Well, been gone for some millions of years. There was a, uh, a there were more species of mammals, and they were more impressive than larger mammals on Earth than there are now. Uh, some millions of years ago, and um, their diversity has declined. Uh, fishes, on the other hand, have exploded in the last ten, tens of millions of years, and uh, even though they're struggling now with human exploitation of their populations, nevertheless, mm-hmm. uh, with about 33,000 known species and several dozen being discovered every year, uh, we're living in a time when there's actually a huge diversity of fish. Um, if anyone's ever gone snorkeling on a reef in the tropics, you, you'll, you'll, you'll appreciate that. And you can watch wonderful videos on TV or BBC documentaries, Blue Planet 2, and you can see that just the incredible richness, the diversity, the complexity, the, uh, the different variety of ways that fish, fishes manifest uh, their, their, how they look and how they behave. It's, it, it made researching and writing this book a real joy. That's wonderful, yeah. So in a way, the, the, the pure diversity of fishes is a measure of their uh, high ability to succeed so many different kinds. Now, part of that is the fact that they live in the largest habitat on the planet. We mm-hmm. all know that about three-quarters of the planet is uh, is covered by water. And there's fresh water, there's salt water, there's the shallow oceans, there's mm-hmm. the areas, there's the abyss. There are coastal areas. There's just uh, different uh, latitudes where some water is colder and some warmer. There's, there's a, lot, a lot of options. And um, that's, you know, manifested in the great diversity that we see. So fishes have many different ways of surviving, and their adaptations are incredibly richly diverse. So many ways that they've found to to make a living, for want of a better term. And, and certainly parenting is, is one of those areas. Uh, not all species parent. In fact, most don't. But I think about, about a quarter of all fish species have some level of parental care. Um, some okay. of them just lay bunches of eggs and don't look mm-hmm. after them, and they're sort of cast into the water. And that's kind of a numbers game, a lottery mm-hmm. approach. Uh, but many others have fewer numbers of young, and they put a lot of energy into them. Consider that sharks, uh, while parental care isn't really noted for sharks, they nevertheless invest heavily in their right. young before the young are born. And, and most, many of them are born live, 
and they're quite large at that time. So it's a little bit like humans in the sense that there's a huge amount of um, energetic investment in the in the fetus in the womb before the birth actually takes place. Mm-hmm. Some of those deep sea also has a lot of lifespan. The Greenland shark probably lives can live to over two, over 400 years. The 392 is the is the official record now. Um, wow. So they're very long-lived creatures. Yeah, that actually wow. was, that study was published after my book was written, so I was frustrated that I couldn't get that in the book. It is pretty astounding. I mean, if Greenland sharks live in very cold waters, as the name implies. They're very slow-growing. They they grow to a big size. I think they get to close to 20 feet, and uh, they cruise around there quite slowly. They don't have to eat very often. And uh, okay. by measuring corneal layers, that uh, layers put that laid down each year in the eyes, it's a little bit like measuring the rings of bark on a tree. You can literally count those layers under a microscope. And uh, one of the females in the study was uh, 392 years old when she was caught wow. healthy by a fisherman. By a fisherman. Oh wow! Are humans literally their only predation threat? Probably. Right. So one other thing I wanted to bring up, there I'm sure are plenty of people who adapt the dietary lifestyle of pescatarianism, which is a dietary lifestyle that omits meat besides fish. So basically the only living thing that pescatarians eat would be cooked or raw fish. You have developed a profound respect for their complexities. And so I'd just like to get a little insight from you on pescatarianism? Sure. That's a great question. Um, yeah, I think the, the, the fact is that you, you have a lot of people uh, who who have shunned all other um, animal flesh except for fishes uh, is, um, is is kind of says a lot about how, where we kind of place fish in the spectrum. And so I'm, 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 I'm fully aware of that. And uh, I mean, I grew up with that impression too. Fishes were always relegated to the cellar of vertebrate life. They were the least considered to be the least conscious and aware and smart and all that stuff. And the primitive thing we talked about earlier, all mm-hmm. of those kind of biases. Having, having delved into what we now know about these, these animals for over five years of my life in a kind of detailed way. I mean, I, I was aware of fishes as a biologist before that, but I really mm-hmm. delved into what we know. It's really convinced me that they are full members of the vertebrate clan. They they are no lesser uh, than the mammals or the birds. They're just as diverse and complex. They do some pretty mind blowing things. Uh, in some uh, certain tests, they actually outscore great apes, uh, and, um, and and so in cognitive tests and certain tests, so they are very very able to do a lot of things. Of course, with that huge diversity, there's a great diversity of capacities among species. So. I'm generalizing here, but as a whole, if we take fishes as a whole, uh, we need to, we, they deserve just as much respect and consideration as any other group. So, so I, I've met many pescatarians as, as, as a long-term vegetarian and vegan for over 30, almost 30 years now. Um, I, I stopped eating fish 35 years ago, but I, I've mm-hmm. often met people who said, do you still eat fish? Or, or people who say, yeah, I stopped eating meat, but I still eat fish. I get it. I understand where they're coming from. I grew okay. up with those biases, too. I would just say that, that there's not really any solid scientific foundation for leaving fish on the menu when you've done away with everything else. And I would add that as an advocate, you know, if, if anyone wants to help fishes and really any other animal, the best way we can help them is, is by omission. That is to say, omitting them from right. the diet. They're not eating them. Because when we buy the products, we're, we're essentially paying the companies to, to keep doing whatever they did to get them there. And commercial fishing, 
not to mention recreation, but commercial especially is a really a really pretty rapacious and cruel industry. Sure. Is there anywhere that you would point um, interested listeners where they could observe this type of thing? If you Google um, long line fishing, same net, tuna fishing, tunas and dolphins, you know, there's a, there's a lot of subtopics there. I also want to mention aquaculture, which has been the fastest growing sector of animal food production in the last few decades. And aquaculture, I've done some, invest, some expert testimonies on undercover investigations of fish farms. And they they're just as problematic in their own ways. Uh, right. Crowding, the, crowding the way the the fish have been moved around as if they're blocks of wood. The methods of killing or dying it's just really deeply problematic in, on many levels. Understood. I have to agree with you also with just the the abuse aspect of it too. People um kind of justifying pescatarianism even though they really express their um, disdain for abuse of, like, cattle and other meats just kind of shows our ignorance towards the feelings and perceptions of fish, which you do a great job highlighting in your book. And to me, it really came forward as truth and not just my own assumption. So I'd just like to credit you there. In your book, you also, um, you really draw on some anecdotes. Would you be able to share one of your favorite anecdotes that you included in this book with our audience? Sure. I mean, there's so many, and, and I have learned as a science writer that, that, you know, we all love stories. We're drawn into them. While mm-hmm. they may have that, that scientific gravity and weight, uh, they're they're instructive, informative, and they're entertaining. Um, one example would be uh, Karen, a, a friend of mine who uh, lives in central Florida. She had a, um, let's see, a discus fish. It's a pretty popular kind of aquarium fish that people get. I shouldn't say aquarium fish as if that's their purpose in life, but it's a, it's a popular species of aquarium tanks and uh, they come in various colors and they're very beautiful beautiful graceful species uh anyway she had a, a blue discus named um jasper and uh, she had him for about eight years they developed quite a relationship they became quite attached or at least karen did to jasper i mean how do you know how a fish feels well you look at their behaviors do they swim over to you when you get home uh, do they swim over to you whether you're feeding them or not <laughs> stuff like that so mm-hmm. You know, when Karen would come home from work, from her day job, she'd spend time with Jasper, and Jasper appeared for all intents and purposes to be pleased to see her at the end of his day alone. Uh, he would swim to the end of the tank, and they would sort of play a game of back and forth where she would kind of rush back and forth on one side of the tank glass, and Jasper would swim swim along with her back and forth. So Aww. that was kind of a nice connection. Yeah, kind of touching. Yeah. And then, um, and then she would uh, typically at the end of those sessions, she would cup her hands and lower them into the water, and their hands would fill with water, of course. And Jasper would swim onto his side, and he would uh, flutter his way into the cup of her hand. And he would just lie there for, uh, I don't know how long, a minute, several minutes, while she mm-hmm. gently stroked him with her thumb. Uh, so this is not a group of fish. This is a, another kind of fish who, for all intents and purposes, appears to love being stroked. I can tell you, you can go on those that, that YouTube and, and 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 put in, type in, you know, fish enjoyed being stroked or petted or what have you. There are at least a dozen, and there are probably by now dozens of videos of people uh, with with their pet fish um, stroking them. The fish swims over to them back repeatedly to their hands to get stroked. In some cases, they'll pick them. They'll trust the the human to 
pick them right out of the water and stroke them and then put them back in. Uh, you know, it, it's really hard to watch a video like that and not conclude that a this animal likes to be touched and b there's a lot of a lot of trust between this fish and this individual. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Yeah, well, I, I want to just add, I, I'm not trying to encourage people to but to buy fish for their aquariums because the okay, aquarium true. industry is another another sad uh, sad example of uh, how we don't don't do well by animals. Uh, the um the, the most of them are caught in the wild. The the export is is, is a big industry. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the collecting methods are destructive. The mortality rates are extremely high. It's being compared mm-hmm. to cut flowers, um, where you have about a ninety percent, well, up to ninety percent mortality rate uh, wow. from getting to, to, to capture site to destination, and then about a ninety percent death rate over the first year of captivity. So yeah. It's problematic. I don't want to encourage people to get aquarium fish. Mm-hmm. That's not to say, though, that uh, people who've had them have not had uh, interesting relationships with their with their captives. Okay. Yeah. Finally, reading your book, I think you're a great writer, and you're also a great and accomplished scientist. So I was just wondering if you could speak a bit about what brought you to writing and what you find gratifying about science writing. You know, writing's always been a, a key part of my my work ever since being a student. You know, we write papers. I became a grad student. You got to write a, 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 a dissertation as a PhD student, and and then I went into advocacy, working in animal protection. And I I wrote uh, letters to the editor. I wrote uh, articles for publication in scholarly journals and, and lay reader magazines. You know, so writing was always part of what I did. And okay. uh, I had a project eventually where it was more like book length. And I'd be like, you know, I can do this. I can write a book. And so yeah. uh, that was back in 2000. And I've never really had any formal training in how to write a book. I think uh, authors develop their own approaches. I have nevertheless taken taken a couple of classes in uh, creative nonfiction, for instance. I've learned a few tools of the trade. And I think it's, uh, you know, a lot of art. It's a form of art, I think, mm-hmm. more than anything. And uh, we, we get better uh, with experience. We do more of it. Uh, I do some some editing now professionally as well. But uh, I've learned that, as I said, stories are really important and uh, dialogue. Mm-hmm. You know, just because you're writing nonfiction doesn't mean you can't include dialogue. Dialogue is kind of storytelling too, and we're drawn into that. So um, I I enjoy the process of writing. It's very exciting to discover new material that is like, wow, I gotta I gotta include that in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's part of the part of the joy of it is, is reaching into a a bag. You don't know what's inside, and you pull out some things. And every once in a while, you pull out a, a gem. You pull out something that's just like, this is so mind blowing. I can't wait to describe this in my book. So that right. passion, you know, that passion. I think if you feel that passion, I think it's going to shine through what what one writes. That's awesome. I say that it certainly has shown through in your book. To me, I really enjoyed reading it. I recommend it to all of our listeners. Again, it's called What a Fish Knows by Jonathan Balcombe. Jonathan, it was great talking with you today. Real pleasure, Kristen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Rock Science, see you next week. Thanks for listening. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.